Hi, this is Reg Harbeck, and today I'm here with Phil Toplitsky, who is the Managing Director of Toplitsky Associates. But that doesn't tell you nearly as much as you're going to find out about someone who has been right there in the middle of the history of the, the mainframe in so many interesting ways. Phil, tell us, how did you end up on the mainframe? Well, it's uh, interesting. I got a graduate degree in computer science back in 1976, and there were only mainframes in 1976. Uh, my degree was specialty was structured programming and design. So I actually was one of the uh, earliest adapters of building quality systems based on software metrics mm. with uh, a subspecialty in uh, problem solving and general systems theory. So my first job out of graduate school was on a mainframe, of course, and I was one of those people that you hear about in Legend that started punching cards. <laughs> I punched cards and had hanging shafts before anyone had heard of it. <laughs> uh, so the uh, Florida connection right from the beginning. Although, of course, you're not actually based in Florida. Uh, no, you, uh, you've been mostly around the eastern United States for your career? I've been my entire career in New York City area. Wow. Okay. Well, just to give you the perspective where I went from uh, a graduate degree in, this, in the mid-70s, I have, uh, over my career, been a CIO, a CTO, a uh, senior executive at Citibank dealing with the data architecture of the retail bank U.S. and Europe. Um, I've been managing director at several consulting firms including three of the big eight firms over the years, starting at the lowest at Pete Mark Mitchell and winding up as a national director over at Cooper's and Library. Cool. So now I'm going to guess that even though you took uh, such advanced uh, education about what might be construed as the technical side of things, that you found yourself pretty early on in the strategic side of things, how much opportunity did you get to actually do any programming before you started getting pulled into the strategic side? Um, not two, three years worth, but I did in graduate school write some utilities that are, I think are still running on IBM mainframes. Oh, cool. Uh, one was the condensed listings program, mm -hmm. which if those of you that know uh, green bar printing mm -hmm. of programs, you get the code and the cross reference and then the errors. Uh, we wrote a program that took that and put it all on one page. On the left was cross-reference, on the right was the code, and on the bottom were the errors. And uh, that's been still running for many, many years. <laughs> so having been uh, taking my degree in the hometown of IBM, Endicott, New York, I think it's SUNY Binghamton, um, mainframes and dealing with the people who actually wrote the code meaning the operating system, they were in my graduate school class. So I knew not just what people do, I knew the people that were making the magic behind the scenes. Cool. Now, um, Ports, by the time you got your degree, OS 360 had been GA for nearly a decade. Uh, so you got to meet people who were basically moving the, the uh, ball forward, as it were, uh, based on, on that initial effort that, of course, Dr. Fred Brooks uh, wrote about in his The Mythical Man Month. Um, what, what were some of your impressions about the journey that uh, OS 360 and its successors had had at that point? Well, um, 
actually met Fred once. <laughs> oh, neat. Uh, my, my senior advising professors, uh, Jerry Weinberg and Don Gauze were two of the founders of uh, structured design and programming. My, my class was one of the first to learn that. So I was one of those programmers, if you can believe it, who uh, never wrote spaghetti code, never learned how to do it, hmm. learned how to do it from requirements forward, learned uh, the discipline of walkthroughs when it was still in its infancy. Um, I actually even met Grace Hopper a few times. Oh, wow. Because she, she came, because in those days, it was Endicott, it was IBM, it was the hometown of OS 360. Mm -hmm. She would come and lecture. So wow. I met her and she came and gave a lecture at school. So not only did I get the chance to learn it as it was changing into the structured design and programming where do it the right the first time, if it doesn't work by the third time, do it over. Mm. But uh, in my class, we had the folks that were writing OS 360. And as we were using the features, we could go to the guy and say, so why did you write it this way? <laughs> and yeah, it, was, it was an interesting discussion, way to learn. So I'm going to guess you wrote a fair amount of assembler. No, no, no. We, we actually were being trained to be, uh, how should I say, senior level managers. Mm. We, we learned high level third generation languages. Yes, I had enough assembler and JCL so I could make the world work. <laughs> But we were really being trained to be the next leaders. Mm. And almost everyone from my graduate class wound up becoming chief technical officer, head of uh, disk development at DEC, head of OS at DEC. One of them wrote the, uh, um, for Lotus and Manzi, wrote all of the printer interfaces. So we were being trained. We were the first generation of people being trained not to be computer scientists in the lab, not to be programmers, but maybe the people that ran the next generation of development and built the big systems, the major oh. systems. And, and it was a different kind of training. We got a lot of training in problem solving. The book, uh, which I recommend to everyone to read, Are Your Lights On? By Jerry Watt and Don Gores. Brilliant book. Uh, everyone, no matter if you're a computer scientist or you're a social worker, I recommend reading the book. It is one of the seminal books on problem solving. Cool. So we spent a lot of time on problem solving requirements, translating requirements into design. And we learned programming as being coding. Hmm. I'm going to make this point because it's tremendously important. You get the requirements, but you also get the constraints. Mm -hmm. The point of design is to take the requirements, what it should do, the constraints of what it shouldn't do, mm -hmm. and design the program. So we learned design first, pseudocode structure charts, flow charts, whatever diagram, Massey Schneiderman charts, and the act of programming should be the act of coding, the translation of a design into a target language. It is not the place where you do design. Mm. 
Now that said, you haven't mentioned which language it was yet, and I keep trying to decide whether it was PL1 or PLS or PLX or COBOL. Or... So two, the ones I learned learned on were APL, oh. an interpretive language, and where everyone always talks about Ken Iverson teaching APL, because he said he was the inventor. I actually was taught by Iverson's manager. Oh, wow. Mr. Mr. Rose. So I learned from Iverson's manager how to do APL because it was an interpretive and it had, if you can believe it, many, many of the features of that now became Excel because it had some very, uh, some reduction, which is the adding up of a column, matrix algebra in it. So we used a lot of the things that now became visualization, statistical analysis. The other one is uh, PL1. And mm. the reason for PL1, it's basically COBOL or ALGOL on steroids, but it didn't matter because I didn't learn the language. Oh, I learned the BNF. Mm. We learned a language from the BNF up. Back is now form, right? Yes, back, well, they, Poor Mr. Nauer is now been out of it. They call it back this normal form now. Oh, but, but I learned it by learning the language. So from the abstraction to the concrete, the result was when I went out and um, got my first job and I went to a different language entirely on an HP Hewlett Packard machine, uh, I designed the program my manager gave me. He thought it would take me six months to a year to learn it. I did it in less than three weeks. He said, nice. how did you do this? I said, because I designed in the abstract. Hmm. Then it was a matter of only finding out how this specific language did that specific command. So I went to the back of the book and read the BNF. <laughs> Very nice. So if you learn programming the right hmm. way, which is from the abstraction, learning what a language is, what BNF is, not COBOL or PL1 or ALGO or uh, C or uh, whatever, Java, all of them are written in BNF. Hmm. If you do your design in the abstract, to go to any particular language is knowing how to read the BNF. So my sense is, sorry, I didn't mean to drop. Go ahead. That's why we teach programming wrong. You Hmm. shouldn't teach the language. You should teach first what the language is Hmm. then the abstraction of what BNF is, mm-hmm. and then you can learn any language because now you have the tools to learn. Including COBOL. Including COBOL. So I'm going to guess that your, your approach to how we fill in a new generation on the COBOL workforce is probably geared a bit differently from what people might be defaulting into. Yes. I've, I actually have written, a, I think I've sent it to you, a 60, 70-page curricula for doing a COBOL work uh, boot camp, And what it does is combine software engineering. Mm-hmm. So you understand what a program is and how they work and how data structures plus algorithms, algorithms equal programs. And you understand how the von Neumann machine works and you learn BNF and you learn the language and And this is a very, very important part. You learn (laughs) the process of building software. Mm. You understand the translation of requirements into software. 
how to test software and the systems development life cycle. Because the systems development life cycle is a very complex interconnected system. I've identified, I've written a couple of papers on this. There are about 17 or 18 different life cycles that interact with each other to make software work. And I've taken this from the bottom and as the CIO and the CTO having responsibility and shown how they interact not as a zero one interaction at each step, but that it's a fuzzy set relationship that's dependent upon the type of software and type of organization, type of tools and the environment you're working with. So a visualization using a tool is one thing. Writing E911 for a big city where you need uh, uptime of 0.00001, which is one minute a year, is quite different. Mm. So now, those are the, the different things you have to balance. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that you and I could continue this conversation for about 30 years and not run out of stuff. Uh, and so I feel guilty kind of fast forwarding, but I, I don't feel like I have an opportunity to do otherwise just because there's so much to, to, to learn about your journey. But what I'd like to do now is, is jump into something you and I are both working on, and that is the COBOL Working Group. Um, and and uh, you've contributed a lot to that and the whole idea of, of helping the world reawaken to the, the prevalence of COBOL and the need to recognize that and, and responsibly plan for the future and, and a whole bunch of different ways with that fact, including the survey we recently did. Uh, maybe you get some impression of what led you to the point of being involved in this and, and you know, how do you see the outcome and your participation in it? Well, interesting enough, uh, having been um, the head data architect for Citibank, I was uh, tasked with developing a model for online banking. This is 25 years ago, a mm. long time ago. And one of the factors we faced was that the core banking systems are COBOL. Mm -hmm. They run on big mainframes. And, they're, and in fact, one of the realizations we came to is that uh, there is a class of applications, those that have to run within a constrained time window, what we used to call in the old days, the batch window, mm -hmm. that, I, that need to have very large volumes of data come in from other systems have to run on a mainframe in a third generation compiled language. There's just a whole class of, pro of programs that must run that way. You couldn't possibly run them. And I know everyone's gonna say, well, look at Amazon. Well, Amazon, <laughs> what you think of Amazon as being the um, online order, it's not really very processing demanding mm. because it operates in human time. Mm. So you sit there for a half an hour and do your order. You hit the enter key and it keeps a record of what you've ordered. And then when you finish, you, you go and do your credit card, which is done in assembler to a mainframe over at MasterCard or Visa mm -hmm. and gets recorded in the bank to do the money ah. transfer on a mainframe. <laughs> at night in the batch window and takes the money, you know, and credits and debits your accounts. That's such a fun perspective on Amazon. When you're using Amazon, they may not be using a mainframe, but you're using a mainframe for the most important backend stuff they're relying on. 
And it even gets more interesting because when they finally do the order and send it to the warehouse to figure out how to do the picking and everything else, they're running a mainframe to do the order entry, the picking to keep their records because how else can you run a million square foot warehouse? So what do you do? You do the same thing that GM has done and Ford for the last 40 years, you need a large mainframe to do the optimization because you would need a room full of computers. So when they sell you the cloud in their business, that's a way of optimizing for people that need little spaces. And I know people say, well, I run big. No, you don't run big things on clouds. Mm. You run big things on the clouds of mainframes. Mm. It must be up. You have two mainframes sitting there connected by a long wire. So if you lose one data center, you have another. Mm. This is not for the guys running Quicken or, <laughs> you know, on his, for his small business. And by small, I mean anything under a billion dollars. Right. I'm talking if you're GM and you've got to run the assembly line, you have a big mainframe. This is the class of system we're talking about. Now, you mentioned something about Amazon and a mainframe, and I want to make a connection. Um, you're not saying Amazon actually has IBM mainframes on premises, are you? No, no. We're talking about how do you run when you're going to go to UPS? Ah, got it. And they're at the factory. How do you optimize the talking between them? How does Amazon do wire transfers ah. and fed wire? To their suppliers. I mean, there is a certain class when you got to run a swift transaction to the guy in India who's supplying you. So there's a whole lot of, when you think of Amazon, it's monolithic. People say, well, so I'm going online or I'm buying their cloud. But there's a business called Amazon and they got to run payroll for 100,000 people. What do you run 100,000 people payroll on? Now, you may go to a service, but they're running mm. on a mainframe. Cool. So something like ADP, for example. Yeah, because that's have a there are a certain class of things that have to have it. If, if you're writing a uh, program that has to take all the Fedwire, Swift, chips, transactions, and you have four hours to process them, because by law, you have to do the... Uh, uh, the credits before the debits to get your mm. actual bank balance. There's nothing else in the world to do it. Cool. You can't take in a big, big BSAM file and process it. Well, I, I, I normally at this point I say so. Let's you know tell us some closing thoughts in the future. But I, I, I don't want this to be simply closing thoughts. I, I because I think you've got a vision of the future built on all this time and the strategizing and everything that that is is somewhat more comprehensive. So maybe if you could just kind of describe the future, not merely as you predicted, but as you, I like to say predicted, as as you would uh, involve yourself in making to the extent that you could be involved in, in seeing the future of IT, of COBOL, of, of large enterprise computing. What I think is going to be the hybrid approach. You're going to have the core systems, the ones that must process at a limited time in a scheduled type of environment because there are certain cutoffs from business. <laughs> and that will be wrapped with core, with, um, how should I say, front ends and back ends 
that will give end users capability. So you'll still have the web, you'll have the equivalent of interactive, but when you hit the enter key for the final cart to be processed, it'll go back to a core system. It's like uh, online banking. Mm -hmm. Online banking, the balance you see, while reflects what it is, isn't the legal books of the bank. Legal books can only be done after you process the credits, which come in at night from fed wire and chips. And now for the average person, it doesn't really matter. But there is a sense of the legal books versus what you know, the shadow post of the, what's really happening. They developed this with cards. You know, where do you get, you know, payments and the card transactions and having the assurance that if you're in the United States and a transaction comes through from New York, where I live, and my card is processed in Japan at the Olympics, something's wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and only a big mainframe can deal with that kind of multi-processing in real time. So what you'll have is the hybrid environment. What we don't have is someone to replace the programmers who were reaching their 50s and 60s mm. who built this stuff and their schools aren't teaching it anymore. And we're going to have a, a shortage of folks who know how to do structured design programming, mainframe programming, COBOL to maintain doing this. They've tried outsourcing it to India, to Russia, to Poland, and the problem becomes it's a huge security risk. Mm. This is the jewels that keep the country running. There has been some estimates that the COBOL code represents the second most valuable asset in the United States after oil. Oh. After which? Oil. Oil, wow. Oil and gas. And, and of course, things. once we're all running on uh, solar and wind power sometime in the next few centuries, maybe we'll still have COBOL. You'll still have COBOL. You'll have COBOL or whatever the analog is that's a compiled program because compile is much, much faster than interpretive, no matter mm -hmm. what you do, just by definition. Mm -hmm. And it's much more secure. It's got more resiliency. And when you use it with modern databases, uh, you're going to have to have a mainframe. At the end of the day, if you're running a database that's 25 terabytes, where are you going to run it? Mm. Now, I built some 25 terabyte databases in my mm. day. You can only run them on a mainframe, maybe, maybe on a parallel nothing, nothing machine, but it's still the equivalent of a big mainframe. Mm. And quite frankly, OS 360 or whatever they call it now, OZ, <laughs> is a much more reliable OS, much more resilient. And doing an LPAR is a lot easier than figuring out how many extra Intel processors you have to put on. <laughs> and that's just putting it lightly. Yeah. So um, uh, I guess before saying goodbye, I just wanted to see if there's any last thoughts you want to share there. But obviously, this has been barely an appetizer of, of everything you could share. And, and people probably should Google you up and see what else you've been writing and doing. But any final thoughts? Yes. Being... Um, as we lose the blue collar jobs, there is a opening for smart, dedicated people to make good livings being mainframe COBOL programmers. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. It is an open field. Not everyone has the graphic ability to be a web designer. Not everyone has the uh, uh, backend analytics skills or the uh, the uh, uh, background in statistics to be a backend analytics person. But most people who've gone through college and have a reasonable familiarity with computers and some mathematical or logical background can make very good mainframe programmers. And pretty soon we're gonna have a shortage of those. I think the COVID with the uh, mm. changes in benefits prove that. And my experience having dealt with this for 45 years, we're gonna need them. And this is a good job opportunity. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Phil. This has been fascinating. My pleasure. Anyone wants to talk about it, get in touch with Reg, because as Reg said, we work on the committee together, meet on a regular basis, more than happy, have uh, big file cabinets full of stuff. Mm. And as I said, I had an education business where I know how to teach. I have a graduate degree in teaching as well. If I can teach high school students social mm. studies, I can teach you COBOL. <laughs> awesome. So I'll be back with another podcast next month. But in the meantime, check out the other content on Tech Channel. You can also subscribe to their weekly newsletters, webinars, ebooks, solutions directory, and more on the subscription page. I'm Reg Harbeck.